0: Thank you, Gordon and Barbara, for our music this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. We are in Romans chapter 8 doing a series of messages on the Holy Spirit from now to our Christmas season. And so this is message number two from Romans 8. Last week we spoke on the first four verses of Romans 8 which describes basically the Holy Spirit. You see in verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And then it also speaks of salvation that we have in Christ. Verse 3, for example, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sin for uh, flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So this week, we're going to look at verses 5 through 8. And then next week, verses 9 through 11. These two parts of the text in Romans 8 describe, first of all, the carnally-minded person, and then secondly, next week, we'll talk about the spiritually-minded person. So since we're going to look at those two words, you, you, if you see verse 6, for example, in your text, you'll see those two expressions, the carnally, to be carnally-minded is death, to be spiritually-minded is life and peace. I want to give you a little review or summary of where these words come from and why we have them and why we use this kind of language, if you will. You know that we were all created by God and we are created in his image. Every human being that lives is in the image and likeness of God. That's why human life is precious, Uh, more than angel life, more than animal life or plant life. We alone are made in God's image. But in the Garden of Eden, our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, sinned. And when they sinned, we call it the fall into sin happened. We I don't think we can imagine the severity of what happened there in in the Garden of Eden. Can you imagine eternity? Can you, in your mind, have that kind of concept of eternity? For eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit existed in perfect, sinless harmony and love without a speck of sin, without a speck of, of adversity toward them for eternity. And then God decided to create. Heaven and earth and the angels and human beings, and for the first time in all eternity, sin enters into that harmony. First by the angel in the angel world, by Lucifer, and then into the human world uh, by human beings. I don't think we can we can grasp what an affront that was to a holy God that has existed for eternity without any sin. So man. And all that are born of them were cut off from God and cut off to themselves so that human beings have no contact with God. We think we do, but our sin has separated between us and God. And so we live for ourselves, and we don't have a way back to God. Well, all human beings then are carnal. That is, we are fleshly. We are sinful and fleshly. I'm talking about the way that we're born and the way that we come into this world and the way that we live and die without Jesus Christ. Fleshly. And that's all that we are. Shut off to ourselves because of what sin has done to us. So you see that word carnal in your Bible. It's the word fleshly. It comes from the word sarks, which is the word for flesh. And that's what we became at the fall. Now, excuse me, the word, the word flesh is used a few different ways in the Bible. Let me tell you a few of them. One is sometimes the word flesh, a few times, just refers to this stuff on, on our skeleton, this skin that we have, this flesh that we have. And so Paul will say, though we walk in the flesh, we don't war after the flesh. I mean, we, we walk in physical bodies, so to speak. John said it's a matter of orthodoxy to believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, meaning he took upon himself human flesh, a human body. He was 100% human. So it's used that way a few times. Sometimes it's used to speak of all humanity. Matthew 24, Jesus said, if the tribulation period were not cut short and, and limited to seven years, no flesh would be saved, meaning All humanity would die. No one would be alive if he didn't shorten it to seven years, which he did, praise the Lord. But most times the word flesh, when we see it in the New Testament, refers to that fallen nature that happened to Adam and Eve in the garden and that you and I are born with. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me, not that out of wedlock, that means That sinful nature was passed on from Adam and Eve to David and to everybody else that is born of Adam and Eve, and that is all of us. So now it refers to the human nature that is in us. We are fleshly. We are selfish. Look at chapter 7, verse 18, just up above our text. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, you see the word sarks there, nothing good dwells For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I do not find. The sinful nature. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul is contrasting the the works of the flesh and and the fruit of the spirit. And so he will say, the works of the flesh are these, and boy, he gives a long list of all the sins that people commit. These are the works of your sinful nature, the works of our flesh. And so flesh, and especially as we have it in in Romans chapter 8, refers to that old sinful nature, the life that you are cut off to because of sin, You you abandon God and sin before a holy eternal God, and now you're yourself, and you're flesh, and you're sinful, now, what's the good news? And we see it in this chapter, and we've seen it already last week, and we will dwell on it next week a lot, and that is, ah, God made a way for us to be saved from it, and God made a way for us to have salvation. And when salvation happens, that is when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, His righteousness is transferred to you. And you receive at that moment a new nature because the Holy Spirit immediately comes inside you, regenerates you, takes up residence inside you, and indwells and seals and and baptizes and all of that in you and makes you a child of God forever. And at that moment, you receive a new nature. Now, that means not one, but you have two. You never lose your old nature. You still have it, Christian, and you will have it until you die. As a matter of fact, many theologians have described this in many ways. Charles Ryrie said it this way Regeneration brings with it a new nature. And he references Second Corinthians five, seventeen. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new nature. And he says, he goes on to say then, which means a new capacity to serve righteousness. The old nature is not eradicated, for the capacity to serve self continues until we die. So a lost person has one nature, and that's a lost and old nature, a sinful nature. But a Christian has two. You still have that until you die, but now you have also a new nature. The Holy Spirit takes up residence and lives inside you. That's why verse 6 will contrast the spiritually minded and the carnally minded you know, in in 1 Corinthians 2 where Paul talks about the natural man, that's a different word. Sukkakos is the soulish man, the man who has a soul but he has no spirit. That is, everything you do is directed toward the soulish things. Then he says, but he that is spiritual has the mind of Christ. And so these two things are contrasted. Now, a lost person then, which we're going to talk about today, has that lost, that, that, that old nature, that sinful nature. He does not have a new nature. He's not been regenerated. He doesn't have that spiritual contact with God. The Holy Spirit does not live in him, and he's cut off to himself or herself. But the saved person has both. And that means, Christian, and I'll come back to this next week in a real way, that is, you can be carnally, you can, you can, live toward the flesh it's still in you it wants control it doesn't have authority it's been dethroned Romans chapter 6 and so it's gone but the old man walks the halls giving out orders and wants you to obey him but he has no authority so the old nature says to you do this look at this say this go there and you don't have to but you also have that new nature where you can follow Christ and be spiritually minded. Now, I want you to note chapter 8, and, and you're looking at it, and verses, verses 8 and 9 as we skip ahead just for definition reasons. So then, those who are, notice the little word, in the flesh, cannot please God. But you, will see this next week, are not in the flesh, but in the spirits. That little word, in, is very important. It speaks of position, speaks of locality. As a believer, though you have the flesh and you have an old nature, you are not in the flesh. You don't live in that world. You are in the spirit. Now, a lost person can only live according to the flesh and he can only live in the flesh because that's all he's got. But you, as a believer, have both the old nature and the new. You can't be in the flesh because you are in the spirit, but you can give way to it and you can let it control you if you're not careful. Again, we'll come back to that next week. So in verse 6, that's described as being carnally minded and spiritually minded. So both of these kinds of people are described in verses 5 through 11. Again, we're going to break it into two things. You have then in your bulletin an outline, just actually four uh, short things, to describe these four verses. And so the title of this morning's message is to be carnally minded. What is it then to be carnally minded? That is, without the spirit, without regeneration, the old thing that you were born with. Just your sinful nature. Well, number one, I say they because we're talking about the carnally minded. They mind the things of the flesh. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. I'm going to define some things this morning, so stay with me. There are three words here you need to notice. First is according to. And by the way, the word live is not there Uh, in the older version. it's, It's more literal. If you are according to the flesh, it should be italicized like it is in the second part of the verse, or if you live according to the Spirit. According to means that your life is directed by, this is your true motive, this is the love of your life, and that is your flesh. Those who live according to the flesh mind the things of the flesh. This is what you love. This is what you do. And the truth is you can do no other. Even to pretend to be religious is selfish to you. The second word is the word flesh. So those who live according to the flesh. And by the way, I like the word live there simply because it it speaks of your whole life. It speaks of what you do as a lost person in your life. You do things according to your flesh, the old nature. But that flesh, I've defined already, right? You understand now what that is. Not not the body, the corpuscles, and the blood, and the skin, but your nature, what you are when you're born. But you see that word mind in verse 5? They set their minds. That's actually one word in that language. Froneo is the word for Mind. And to set your mind means to focus their gaze. It means to take the flesh's side every time. It means I'm in that party. It means this is the point of my interest. I set my mind on these things. That's what I do. Let me read what Paul said in Ephesians 2, 3 in describing this same thing. He said, among whom also we all uh, once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's the way he describes it to the Ephesians. Pretty, pretty sorry description there of people. So here's a lost person cut off from God and cut off to himself or herself. No new nature. Sin has separated them between themselves and God. The mind is always thinking, what can I do for myself? How can I fulfill what I want to do? How can we describe this? I I was thinking, you know, I've traveled some in England. You ever been to England? Uh, everything's backwards in England. You know they they drive on the wrong side of the road. Uh, you know they, they have crazy crazy things, but they they have an expression as you're walking around London called "Mind the Gap," and that means that uh, when you're about to get on the subway, there is a message right there on the floor, and you hear it coming through the loudspeakers that says "Mind the Gap." Now what it means is look down. <laughs> And see the gap between the platform and the subway. Because if you don't, you may (laughs) step in the wrong place. Mind the gap. So you can buy t-shirts with mind the gap. You can buy neckties that say mind the gap and so forth. And the other thing is that when you're walking the streets and you come to an intersection, again, you have to look down. And almost at every intersection, there's a sign that says, look right. And you know why it says that? Because they're driving on the wrong side of the road, that's why. Because we are so used in this country to looking left, right? You come, to, you come to the curb, you look left to see if a car is coming, and if not, you step out. If you do that in England, you're going to get hit from the right side because they're coming from that way. Look right, it says. In other words, all the time you're in England, you're looking down. <laughs> you're looking at the directions of, of where you're going. I'm just saying that the lost person constantly has to look down. Every direction that comes to him, every, every impulse that's in him is to look down, never up. Because that's his nature. That's his fallen nature, where he comes from. So, number one, the carnally minded mind the things of the flesh, verse 5. Secondly, and in a short verse, verse 6, the carnally minded will end in death. So verse 6 says what? To be then carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. What does it mean to be carnally minded again? I think you're catching on by now. Every thought, all the time, it's always in your mind. It's what you do. You remember before the flood when God was was fed up with the human race and and uh, destroyed it by the Genesis flood. In Genesis 6-5 it says, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Everything he thought about, every imagination in his mind was evil continually. That's what the old nature will do to you. Again, let me... Read from Ephesians 4, 17, where Paul says to the Ephesians, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that they should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, notice, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. And so... The end is what? The end is death. So what does death mean? Well, you remember 623, right? The wages of sin is death. This is what you get for being in the flesh. This is what you get for being estranged from God that way. The wages of sin is death. Or Philippians 319, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, and who mind earthly things and so the end is death and lost person if you don't know the lord is your savior i want to tell you this it's worse than you thought it's worse than you thought because your separation from god is eternal and not only is it eternal But your eternal separation will be punishment in the lake of fire eternally. It's worse than you thought it was. Let me read the way Jesus summed it up. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils? Look at all the good things I've done. In thy name have done many wonderful works. Then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And in chapter 25, at the end, he says, these shall go away into everlasting punishment. It's worse than you thought. Somebody says, well, I I don't think I can believe in a God who would do that to people. And I say, I rest my case. That's exactly the way the lost mind would think. Linsky in his commentary said this, every thought product of the flesh rebels against God's law. God and his law are in its way. It hates them and wants them removed from its path. Often the very existence of God is denied. New moral codes are invented or an amorality is set up in order to allow the flesh all the indulgence that it wants. Have you ever heard a better description of what's going on in our country today? The invention of moral codes that allow the flesh to live the way they want to live? And to say, God, don't get in my way because I'm not going that way. You know what the penalty is for the person who says, God, I want it my way. I don't want to go your way. You know what God's penalty is? He lets you have what you want. And by letting you have what you want destroys you now and eternally. Praise God for his grace, huh, that he can give. So, two things. The carnally-minded, number one, verse 5, mind the things of the flesh. Number two, they will end in death, and that is eternal death. But let's go on. Verse 7, number three, the carnally-minded are at enmity against God. Let's read it. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That word enmity is actually a, a, a kind of a rare word in the New Testament. It doesn't come up that often. But uh, let me read you James's use of the word. In James 4, 4, he puts it like this, Adulterers and adulteresses, Do you not know that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. To, be, to have enmity with God and against God is to be an enemy of God. This word is defined as hostility, independence, the opposite of love, which is hate. Enmity is not love, it is hateful toward the other view. And then this verse says, those then that are that way, that are carnally minded and have enmity to God, are not subject to the law of God, and as a matter of fact, they can't be. To be subject to something is a very common word. We're to be subject unto the government and those authorities over us. H- wives are subject to their husbands, and we're all subject to Christ and, and uh, to one another in certain ways. You remember 1 Corinthians 2.14 about that natural man. The natural man does not receive, receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. Someone without the Spirit of God cannot know the things of God and cannot appreciate or even feel the love of God. And so he's at enmity, excuse me, with God. Well, you know, William Newell, in his commentary, said this of verse 7, Perhaps no one text in Scripture more completely sets forth the hideously lost state of man after the flesh. Hideous to be this way. You know William Newell. He was a professor uh, in the old time in Moody Bible Institute, and he wrote one book, or excuse me, one song in our songbook, and that was At Calvary, which starts this way Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified. Knowing not it was for me, he died on Calvary. Well, that's the picture here in verse 7. Their life is all for self. Their business is to get things for themselves and to get ahead. Their morality is so that they can feed the fleshly nature. And even their religion, and there are many of them, Is a worship of self the way I want to be and decide to be before God? Every religion except the Christian religion, after all, is is just mere humanity. It's humanism. It's the thoughts of human beings. And that's what's going on here. Would you do one thing for me and just turn back to your left to chapter 1 of Romans? And let me remind you in these familiar verses of three things about those that are at enmity with God. In chapter 1, in verse 23, I'm in Romans, chapter 1, verse 23, these people changed three things. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like unto corruptible man and birds and four-footed feasts and creeping things, the idolatry of the world, and they're still doing that. I'm going to change the way God is to suit myself. Verse 24 says, God gave them up to it. Again, he gave them what they wanted. Verse 25, secondly, they exchanged the truth of God, not only the the glory, but the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who's blessed forever, amen. Verse 26, what did God do? He gave it to them, gave it up to them. And then all the way down to verse 28, thirdly, they did not like to retain god in their knowledge so they gave they changed the knowledge of god to do those things uh, or, or god gave them, when they did that god gave them over to a debased that means a a sinful nature a debased mind to do things which are not fitting so there you go god gives you up to what you want and this is at enmity with God. Well I have one more thing to say then, and that's in verse eight. So not only they mind the things of the flesh, their end will be in death. They are at enmity against God, but they cannot please God. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, that little word I in," that little word that speaks of location, that word that speaks either you're here, or you're there. You can't be both. Now, you can can let the flesh pull you this way and pull you that way, but if you do not know Christ as Savior, you are in the flesh. You are located in your flesh, and in your old nature, there's nothing you can do about it. If you are a believer and have the Holy Spirit in you, then you are in the Spirit, and you cannot be in the flesh. You can't be in that location. So he's saying that again. And those in that location, in the flesh, cannot please God. Can't. That that almost sounds cruel, doesn't it? (laughs) Almost sounds something we should blame God for. Why can't God be happy? (laughs) Why Why can't he be pleased with what I do? Because God is holy and you are sinful. You see the word cannot. That, that is a, a verb that comes from the noun dunamis, which we get our word dynamite from. You've heard this a lot. So dunamis, uh, dunatai, means powerful. So all power, see, is this way. God is powerful. And so that word dynamite, you know, we get our new word dynamite uh, from it because it's something that's powerful. So dunamis always means the power to do something. And what Paul says here is they do not have the power to please God. Jesus used this word a couple times in Luke 14 when he was saying, if a man doesn't come after me and give up all that he has, he can't be my disciple. So in, in 1424 of Luke, he says, whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me, do die, cannot be my disciple. It's not that God's saying, I I won't let you. God's saying, you don't have the power. You don't have it in you to be my disciple. And that's true of every sinner. And then in verse 23, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. You don't have the power. And so we don't have the power to please God when we are in the flesh. You cannot make yourself a disciple of Christ. You can't make yourself be saved. The only way this can happen is for you to throw yourself at the mercy of God and let Him do it. Which the selfish mind says, "Oh, I would never. I would never sink that low. I would never admit that of myself." Cannot please. That word, please, go. It means to agree with. It means to have favor from. You cannot get favor from God. You don't have it in you. Those that are in the flesh just can't do that. There's another place where this word, please, is used in this kind of a way of of the lost person. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 15 and 16, Paul is describing the Jewish people who crucified the Lord Jesus who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, have persecuted us and do not please God. Literally, they are not able to please God, don't have the power to please God. And they're contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so also to fill up the measure of their sins, the wrath of God has come upon them to the uttermost. A man that I like to read when, when I have his book on something is Randolph Yeager, who's a real linguist. And he, he, he defines there in 1 Thessalonians 2 that word aresco, which means to please that he cannot please. And he says this, aresco means they are by depraved nature opposed to God whom they profess to worship. The lost man says, I worship. I worship here, I worship there, I worship God, I worship all of this. But without being born again, you cannot because you cannot please God, even by your worship. Sad thing, isn't it? But people say, I can please God without being a Christian. After all, you know, being a Christian today is kind of low life in America. You can't be a Christian. You can't can't believe those kinds of things. I'm a good person. I'm a good neighbor. I'm a religious person. I'm a good citizen. I'm even a family man. I'm a good person. Let me remind you, as we wrap this up this morning, chapter 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's Paul's conclusion. And I referenced uh, chapter 6, verse 23 already. The wages of sin is death. You know what you're doing? You're you're earning your way into uh, hell. The wages that you're going to get for your own self-work is death. The wages of sin is death. But then the good news comes. And we'll come back to this next week, but let me emphasize it here. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You have to let Him pay for it. You, you have to let him give you something that you can't invent and you can't do. It's not in you to do. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I like to call it the great exchange. The great exchange where you give Jesus Christ your sin and he gives you his righteousness. That's what happened on Calvary's, on Calvary's cross. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Uh, where he says we're ambassadors for christ we implore you on christ's behalf be reconciled to god for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of god in him he takes upon himself alien sin which was not his own and we take upon ourselves alien righteousness which was not our own the great exchange What a great thing the gospel is to offer that to people and to say, this is your way out. This is your way, the only way that God can be pleased is through the righteousness of his own son and the righteousness of Christ. And that can be yours by faith, by the gift of God. Newell also said, mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied for me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. What a great message of grace that is. Stand with me, if you will, as we think about these things and think about what Paul has said here to the carnally minded, then we need to search our own hearts right now and say, I know in whom I have believed. I know that I'm saved. I know I've accepted Christ as my Savior and delivered from this fate that we read in these verses. I, I pray that that's true of you. Let's pray together. Now, Father, how we thank you for the Word of God, for revealing to us not only what we truly are and the condition we live in, but, Father, your love and grace toward us and the sacrifice of your Son in our behalf and in our place. So, Father, today, I think no doubt in many places around the world, the gospel is preached and has been preached already today. I pray, Father, that hungry souls and burdened souls would find uh, Christ uh, true and satisfying to their heart. So, Father, wherever this word is preached, where I have preached it here today, or whether uh, it's heard by someone, I pray, Father, that the burden of sin would be too great and someone would turn to you and say, please give me forgiveness through Jesus Christ. So, father i pray you'd do that and as we search our hearts and know for sure who we are and that we're saved i pray father that someone is not that they would find that assurance today the way they need so bless in this time that we sing this invitation that we give we'll thank you in jesus name amen we're going to sing a song of invitation our invitation is always in two parts you may come and i'll meet you here at the front while we sing this song if that's the way the lord has moved you Or after we're done and people are are leaving, I'm still here and uh, you come and let's take care of whatever it is that the Lord has laid on your heart. You do what he wants you to do as Gordon comes and leads us in the song.